0: I'm going to take a few minutes on the front end of this message to frame up this message in the context of the whole series, but I would like to invite you to go ahead now and turn to Psalm 119. That's where we will spend the bulk of our time. Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. Psalms is the longest book in the Bible, and Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the longest book of the Bible. So I am... Anticipate that my message today will for sure have you home by dinner, okay? For sure you should be good then. Actually, we're going to do something quite different today. It's a little bit odd, especially for the second message in a 10-part series. It's an idea that we got from Kevin DeYoung and I say we because Lloyd's teaching the same message down at Franklin this morning and so we've been trading ideas all week And, and this is the idea for today. We are going to here in message number two will be the conclusion to the series. It's a bit odd, isn't it? This, in fact, we're going to begin with the end. You see Psalm 119, where we'll go today, that's the goal for all of us. What we hope will be true about every single one of us when we finish the series. And so we're going to begin with the end in mind, to steal a phrase from Stephen Covey. We'll begin with that end in mind, and we'll make some conclusions today, I will, from the passage, from the chapter, that we will then come underneath over the next eight weeks that we hope will ring more true, these conclusions will ring more true and resonate more deeply as we build the foundation underneath them over the next eight weeks. Now there's one more thing that I want to say about this series as a whole before we look at Psalm 119 again, with the help of uh, many, many great theologians that I read this week. I'll I'll say this just to start. The the whole series is anchored in what the Bible says about the Bible, okay? Word of God series, we're going to the Bible. What are we gonna use to defend the authority of the Bible? The claims that the Bible makes about itself. Michael, Lloyd, and I, our goal is to be clear, is to be candid, And it is to be distinctly biblical in our approach. We make no pretenses about that. So if you are new to this conversation, if you are exploring Christianity, if you have questions or doubts, and when I say something like that, it makes you a bit skeptical of what we're doing. I want you to know I get it. I I get it. Just right here off the bat, I get it. If you hear that and you go, well, that's, that's, that's clever, that's... Easy. that That sounds a bit like circular reasoning. I want you to know this. you would be right you would it is circular reasoning at least to a degree. but I would offer you this circular reasoning is necessary for anyone trying to defend supreme authority. Stay with me here just for a minute. Anyone trying to defend supreme authority requires it requires circular reasoning. In fact, all arguments for supreme authority must appeal to that authority for proof. Where else are you going to go? You're going to go to some lesser authority to prove the reality or the credibility of your supreme authority. The minute you do that, you just made this your supreme authority. So yes, it is circular reasoning at least to some degree but certainly no more so than the scientist who defends the authority of science based on science and certainly no more so than the existentialist who defends the authority of self individual self on the basis of his own personal experience and so I understand the objection but it doesn't slow me down and it doesn't make what we're doing today invalid does not make Christianity unreasonable or irrational? In fact, we'll spend the next eight weeks talking a lot about the rationale and reasons for why we believe this book to be credible and trustworthy. It's just not the place that we start. Those aren't our first principles if you're a student of philosophy. No, the place that we start is the Bible because to evaluate it by anything less is to make the Bible less than it claims to be. So we'll start right here. And there's no passage of scripture in the Bible where the Bible says more about itself than Psalm 119. So that's why I've picked this psalm. And far from an academic dissertation, this this is an emotional, expressive, gushy, almost embarrassing love sonnet or love letter. I want you to get a taste of this. If you would, turn over to Psalm 119, verse 129. We'll start there. And we're gonna bounce around some today and I'll give you the reason for that in a minute. But start at 129. I just want you to hear this. For example, your testimonies are wonderful, the psalmist writes. Therefore, my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light, gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth wide and panted. I long for your commandments. Ever panted after the word of God? Turn to me, be gracious to me after your manner or as is your manner with those who love your name. Establish my footsteps in your word. Do not let my iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. This is pretty emotional stuff. And it's like this throughout the chapter. And though it may feel a little over the top to us at first, I'll tell you what amazes me. And what amazes me is that the place where the Bible says the most about itself, it doesn't try to convince us in our minds. It just goes right after our hearts. Now, I'm not saying that There isn't anything for our minds here, certainly as is true in any passage of Scripture. There's something for us to know that the psalmist wants to put in our heads. There is something that he wants us to do that he'll invite us to do with what he teaches in this book. At the end of our time, we'll talk about what we do with our hands. But there is something that's a little bit deeper that he wants us to feel in our hearts. In fact, that'll be the framework for how I go through Psalm 119. It's just going to be head, heart, hands. What does he want us to know? What does he want us to feel? And what does he want us to do with it? Psalm 119 is, I mentioned this, the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses. It's made up of 22 stanzas of eight verses each. It's an acrostic, meaning that every Verse in each stanza begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So like verses one through eight, they begin with the letter Aleph, verses nine through 16 begin with the letter Beth and so on and so forth. 169 of the 176 verses speak to the word of God directly. The psalmist references the word of God and he uses eight synonyms to do so. When you hear these, just think, The word of God, here they are, the law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, promises, commandments, rules, and the word itself. So just think about shades of the same color. There is a little variation in meaning, but if you got out the painter's wheel and you looked at green or a section of green, and they're just shades of that same color, all referring to the same big idea, and that is God's revelation through his words. And because the big idea is consistent throughout, you don't have to teach a chapter like this from beginning to end as a progression from verse one to verse 176, very different than how we would go through Ephesians or Ezra where we teach and it builds on each other. Not here, no, it's the same expressions or the same themes, just nuanced a little bit differently in each stanza. And so we'll bounce around as the psalmist does. First question is about our heads. What is the psalmist trying to put in our head? What does he want us to know? And I'll answer it. He he wants us to know that this book is true. It's just that simple. That's what the psalmist wants us to know, that it's true. I want you to name a place, at least in your mind, where you can go. Uh, Maybe it's uh, something you could read or maybe it's something that you could watch Some speaker that you could hear where you are absolutely 100% sure that all of it is true. Take the Bible out of it for just a minute. Where's a place you can go? Absolutely 100% sure. Any place you can go? Not on this earth. There's not. You can't even fully trust me, Michael, and Lloyd. For sure, not Lloyd. For sure, not him. (laughs) No, you can't. Wow, we're fallible people, right? We live in a wiki world, meaning that so, somehow everything fallible that people can know becomes infallible when it's collected all together on a page, right? Certainly there is some collective knowledge there, but I would say with a heavy dose of collective ignorance as well. No place on earth that we can be 100% absolutely sure, but the psalmist, he says this book actually is that. He can be trusted. He can be trusted because every word of it is true. That's what he says. The Bible makes that claim about itself far more often than this, just this chapter as well. But I want you to see it here. Look at verse 151 first. Verse 151, Psalm 119. Here's what the psalmist writes. About as simple as the day is new. You are near, O Lord, and all does that mean? It means all. All your commandments, there's one of our terms for the word of God, are truth. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Look at verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law, another word for the word of God, is truth. Look at verse 138. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding Faithfulness. Faithfulness is a huge theme in this chapter. Why would I include the word faithfulness when I'm talking about truth? It's because the Hebrew word means in this setting true to the facts. That's why I'd include it. That's what it means. It's completely trustworthy. What can make that hard for us to fully embrace is that there is nothing else like it on earth. If I were speaking right now of any other book, name any other book. If I were speaking of another book, we would all say, well, that statement is certainly exaggerative. It's an overstatement. It's hyperbole. But that is exactly the point that the psalmist is making, and I will too. I will suggest that because these are the words of God, this one book actually is true. It's true about everything, all the time what I'm offering to you this morning and it's certainly what the psalmist wants to get in our heads in fact it's the deeper core conviction it's the foundation from which all of his emotional and expressive heart language flows which makes for a nice transition to question number two what is it that he wants us to feel I'm going to answer that right off the top as well here's what he wants us to feel pure delight I'm going to show you this but the psalmist even the length breadth of the psalm he, he is trying to poke at our hearts long enough and hard enough that they might become soft enough to feel and experience this book as the source of our greatest delight that's his endeavor and I'm going to show you this I'm going to read a bunch of verses and uh, welcome you to follow along in your Bible if you want to. I- I'll name the verse so that you can kind of stay with me and I'll go in in a, a number order so that you can just follow along simply. But you're also welcome just to sit back and let these words of delight just wash over you. I, I want us to feel this from the mouth of the psalmist. I'll begin in verse 18. Verse 18. You follower alongers there, y'all ready? Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Verse 24, your testimonies are also my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 45, for I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Verse 62, at midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 77, may your compassion come to me that I may live. Your law is my delight. Verse 82, first line, my eyes fail with longing for your word. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 111, I have inherited your testimonies forever for they are the joy of my heart. Verse 139, my zeal has consumed me. Verse 161, princes, Persecute me without cause, but my heart still stands in awe of your words. Verse 164, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. Verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my Delight! I literally could go on and on. I, when I started putting this section together, I had about 45 verses. Then I cut it to about 30, and now we're down to about 12 or 15. I could literally, right now, I could just go, okay, let's see. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. And it's amazing how the psalmist demonstrates that a heart set on the word of God is a heart that overflows with delight. It's where he finds liberty and joy and hope and comfort and passion and purpose at midnight all through the day, seven times a day, life to its Now, why is that true? Certainly it is true here through the word of the psalmist, but why would that be true? What what is underneath it that would allow him to experience such delight? It's this. It's because the psalmist knows that in God's words, you will find him. That's why. You will find his presence, his actual presence, personhood in his words our souls they don't long for a book filled with words they long for a love relationship with the author of those words and that's why the psalmist can say what he says look at verse 102 I'll show you this he makes this very clear (coughs) verse 102 I have turned aside from your ordinances. I have not turned aside from your ordinances for you yourself have taught me. You yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste? Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Why are they sweet? Because the psalmist finds God, you yourself, in his words. Look at verse 131. Oh yeah, we looked at this. I want you to see how it transitions to 132. I opened my mouth wide, panted, for I longed for your commandments. Here's 132. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Is the psalmist asking the book to turn to him? No, of course not. The verb there is implied. You, you, God, turn to me in your words. You be gracious to me through your words. Words. Verse two reiterates this. Verse four reiterates this. I'll go one more place. Verse 57. Look at verse 57. The Lord is my portion. This verse is kind of written in reverse. I promise to keep your words because you are my portion. It's because I want more of you. Derek Kidner writes this so clearly. He says, it's on God's account God's personhood that we love the words that reveal him. Can you imagine going to dinner with a close friend? And maybe this is a friend you hadn't seen in a while, but it's a friend that when you get together, you just don't skip a beat. You, know, you, you laugh together tons and you cry together and everything in between. And can you imagine connecting with this friend for dinner? You meet at a nice restaurant and you sit down and for more than two hours, no one says a word. Imagine this no sign language no facial expression no even acknowledgement of one another nothing so salad comes entree comes this feels like an eternity and decaf coffee comes cuz it's late at night and you go home can you imagine that it's weird can you imagine what that would feel like Aren't we made, are are, are words not a necessary means to a relationship? Some form of communication, is it not necessary? Of course, it's the way that God made us. And when we listen to his words, when we read them, we hear his words, we will too know him and it will be our greatest delight. About six or seven weeks ago, I realized that I was struggling with depression and anxiety. I went to see the doctor to get some help, and uh, the doctor, she affirmed that for me. The clinical diagnosis is a major depressive disorder. Basically, for the last six or seven weeks, I've been really sad. Discouraged, sad, down, anxious, anxiety kind of ebbs and flows. At some points, it's really intense, and at others, it's it's not. The sadness is just, it started kind of as a numbness, just a general malaise, and now there seems to be a bit more authentic sadness, if that makes sense, a bit more purposeful sadness that I can stir around in some, but I'm I'm still sad, I'm still struggling with that. My energy's been really low. Mornings have been especially difficult for me, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. There that are true in anyone's life if they ever get in that place. There's a circumstantial reasons that are, even today, there are long history reasons, the way that, that uh, we were made, designed, and, and how I've overcompensated for some of those things, things that I've created over time even. And so there are a lot of reasons. I, I don't know that I can put my finger on any particular one or even any particular few. I'm still thinking about it a good bit but i will say this i will tell you that leading a church is hard it is it's no harder than your job i'm not trying to make any comparison i'm just saying that it is it's hard it's it's messy uh, relationships can be really difficult there are uh, struggles and challenges i, I can get real hyper responsible type a personality you know and so i can carry burdens that aren't necessarily mine to carry just weighty on me, I, I can I can go so hard and run so fast that I, I can move past my emotions, you know, and just kind of put them away for another day. I don't know if you've ever felt this, but it's kind of like when you've been really busy at, at work or in some season of your life over a period of weeks, and you're just going nonstop, burning it on both ends, early mornings and late nights, and then you get a couple days off, you get a weekend off, and you wake up sick physically just because you're wore out, you know. I think that's true for me emotionally. Kind of been riding this adrenaline for a number of years, and got some space in the last few months, and woke up sick emotionally. And and there's something true about the energy, kind of in the energy in me, like the motivation for things. Uh, things that felt really hard to do, even just little things, especially at work or. Uh, things that felt really discouraging, comments that are even encouraging comments like, hey man, it's been so much easier to connect at fellowship over the last six months. Well, all I hear in that is, well, it was really hard for the 15 years before that. You know, just, you know, stuff in your head. And um, and so for me, that energy source is, is, um, is interesting. I feel like there's a, a, probably a pretty normal kind of transition uh, in life for a man who's who's 40-ish or around that age, but my whole 20s and 30s have been this warrior phase. You know, let's go climb the hill, let's push forward. And that warrior energy is just waning. need to talk to some of you older guys, you know, about this. It's just waning. And this energy is kind of the motivation, maybe is a better word, is coming from a different place. I'm not sure that I can name the place. I, I can't even really describe the place, but I feel just a renewed energy for teaching and leading, but in a very different way than I have in the last 20 years. And I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I know it when I feel it, if that makes sense. And I'm trying to access that well more often, I'm trying to go there more often. And, and um, I'll say this uh, too, I, I did get on some medicine about seven weeks ago and about two weeks ago it really started helping some. I feel a little bit of an incremental step in the right direction both on um, depression and energy side. Uh, I've had great care, great help, great care. I've been meeting with a counselor, this sage friend of mine that I meet with regularly anyway. And our our conversations have been honest and rich. It has been really sweet. Um, The leadership team and the elder team who have known it since day one have walked and been great support and care for me. I've been able to continue my eating and exercise, being more healthy, and those two or three hours right after working out are just way better than the two or three hours before. That feels good. And Some of you have asked me, I don't have an illness. The depression is not related to my weight loss. I want you to know that. It's, that's been healthy this year, which I'm really grateful for. It's, it's been a difficult season for me, but it's it's also been a good one. And, and I, I wanted to tell you today for two reasons. One is, I just wanted you to know. That's one. I... I know, I wanted you to know because I know that you care. You really do. This is an incredible community of faith and it is such a joy to lead and to teach here. It really is. And I wanted you to know for this reason too, for the last six or seven weeks, I've been really struggling with how you find delight in this book. I've been sad. How do you find delight when you're sad? Can both of those things be true? How can you find delight with whatever's going on in your life right now? Can those two things be true? And let me say this first. There, there were two or three weeks in early December where I didn't open this book at all. Just being honest, I, I didn't have the energy to. Prayed some, thought a lot. I, I didn't open this book at all. I don't love that that's true, but it, it's, I think it's okay. It's part of the season that I'm in. Over the last few weeks, I have been opening this book, and I've been opening it to a place that has been really, really good for my soul. I've been reading all the sad psalms. That's where I've been. I've basically read the whole book of psalms and picked the sad ones, and those are the ones that I've been reading and meditating on. I'm not sure that there's a book out yet on the sad Psalms. I'm not sure there's one out, but I've got the list if if we want to write it. I've got it and I can give it to you. Simply allowing the words of David and so many others to put words to what I've been feeling. To help me find my own words. It's it's just been really, really interesting in this way. Here's what's poured out of me over the last few weeks. So I read those things and it's like words get put in my mouth and then they become my own and my expression is a little bit different. This is what's poured out of me. Sadness, for sure. And delight. Now, I can't explain that. I can't. I, I'm not going to stand up here and go, well, here's the logical reason for that. I, 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 I can't even fully believe it as the words come out of my lips. Sounds crazy. It's certainly counterintuitive, but I'll just say it's true for me. Now I'm at this place where not only do I think that sadness and delight can coexist, like in the same hour, but I actually think, believe that they're meant to walk hand in hand. Now I don't know how I can go to the heights of delight without understanding the depths of my own soul. I don't know how. It seems to the degree that you can understand your own Hard is the degree that you can then delight in God's word. It, at least coming out of the mouth of the psalmist, look at this. In the same chapter that is, I mean, 100% filled with delight, look, look at what he says in verse 28. Right in the middle of it. Verse 28, my soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Look at verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. Look at verse 143. Here's the same thing that I've experienced. I didn't see this until this week. Verse 143. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. I don't know how that works. But I know that they are both true in my life right now. Even in my sadness, there is some delight. Some delight with God. There's some delight in my marriage. There's some delight with my girls. It's been really interesting. I I know that my family, for sure, and our leadership team has actually said this to me multiple times over the last few weeks. They like the slower, sadder bill. You believe that? Idiots. <laughs> they do. They like it. They feel more connected. They feel like the trust is built deeper. They, 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 Two of them have come to me and said that my leadership has been stronger in this month. Now, that makes no sense at all. I've been coming in at 10.30 some mornings, working three hours some days. So that makes no sense. But it's true for them. I don't believe they're lying to me, and I don't believe that the psalmist is either our greatest delight is found in the midst of whatever we're facing in the words of this book because in this book we know his presence I'll finish here and this will be quick and then I'll wrap up the message head, heart, now hands what does the psalmist require of our hands I'm not going to word and verse here I'm just going to let all of it speak we've read enough of it what is the psalmist inviting us to do read this book for all that it is that's what he's inviting us to do He's just over and over and over again trying to get at our heartstrings enough that we might just take him at his word and try it. I can't make you believe that this book is true. I wouldn't even attempt that. I can't make you feel what the psalmist feels. Wouldn't try that either. But I can invite you to read this book. And I can invite you to begin to ask the Spirit of God to help you understand this book. And I know this, I can tell you that properly understood and engaged, this book will over time satisfy your thirst and become your greatest delight. I can. In uh, the movie The Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner plays a farmer who levels his cornfield to build a baseball field. It's crazy because he needs the corn to pay his bills but he, he does it he does it because he hears a small kind of whispering voice in his head and for those of us who have seen the movie this one phrase has stuck with us ever since and I want you to see the scene where this phrase pops out the first time Daddy, what was that? What was what? That voice just now. What was it? We didn't hear anything. All right. Kevin Costner's character, who you just saw right there, does ultimately build the baseball field, as I mentioned before. He does build it. He thinks he's building it for Shoeless Joe Jackson and seven other players that were dismissed or banned from, the, from Major League Baseball in the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Maybe some of you have seen that or read about that in history. But it's actually not for them. If you build it, he will come is ultimately about... Him and his dad. His dad shows up. It's a beautiful story of restoration and redemption at the end of the movie. And so at the risk of being just a bit corny this morning, I think the Spirit of God is whispering in our ear, if you'll read it, he will come. If you'll read it, he will come. If you'll read it desire for understanding, if you read it expectantly, if you read it teachably, dependently and humbly he will meet you there. Why? Because in his words we know his presence. We know him. We have a benediction that we're going to do throughout the series. If you were here last week you'll remember this. I'm going to have you stand and as you stand I'm going to invite you to read something Uh, respond to something with me these are two questions from the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith And, and we do this because we stand with church historic in this over hundreds of years to say that we recognize that we are most satisfied in God and the means to that satisfaction in relationship with God is through his words to us and of course our words To him, And so we'll say it to that end and hopefully this will become a more familiar refrain to us over the course of this series where it doesn't quite feel so rigid as it does now. But I'll read the first question and then I'll speak with you the the response so you can just follow my lead as we say the response to these two questions all in unison, okay? Here's the first question. What is the chief end of man? Answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Second question, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? Answer, the Word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Him, Father, thank you for the privilege that it is to know, to enjoy, and to glorify you. Thank you for the satisfaction that comes even in the midst of sadness, for the moments of sheer delight that interrupt my everyday. Thank you for your rule, which of course is not your rule book. Your rules for us, so far opposite of that, it is your. Kingdom rule in our hearts that in an inverse and counterintuitive way actually sets us free, doesn't bind. It's where we find liberty, hope, joy, peace, comfort, and care. And so I pray then that we would find you in your words. Spirit, would you give us understanding of them? And God, would you help us to know you in a deeply personal and intimate way this series, this year, and over the course of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go in peace.